So today we're in Matthew 8, verses 1 through 17. If you'd stand with me for the reading of God's Word, please. And when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her, and she rose and began serving him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask that as we turn to it, that you would... Give us an amazing focus to see Christ as the most beautiful reality in all the world. We pray that as we look at stories of healing, that we'll see that these are stories of ourselves, that we've been healed by the gospel of Christ if we believed. And like the centurion who exercised great faith, that we would as well. I pray, God, that these would not just be amazing stories of someone who can do healings physically, But to us, they would rise up off the page and show us that you are establishing your authoritative power, not just in these people's lives, but also in our own. And that we would be changed. We love you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We've uh, gone back to Matthew chapter 8. We've just finished the first three chapters, um, the first seven chapters, I should say. And really, in the first four chapters, Jesus has been introduced and shown to be the Savior of the world. And we, we see in chapter 4, verse 24, 23 and 24, it says that he's going throughout all of Galilee, teaching in synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease. Now notice, he's already performing healings before he goes into the Sermon on the Mount. And every affliction among the people... And his fame spread all throughout Syria, and they brought him all the sick and those afflicted with various diseases, pains, and oppressed by demons, epileptics, 
paralytics and he healed them. And great crowds were following him already from Galilee and Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea. So we see healings already occurring before we even go into the Sermon on the Mount. And then we go into this chapter 5 through 7. And if you remember, we spent about 17 weeks on the Sermon on the Mount where he teaches. We don't see any healings. It's just a didactic um, time, a teaching time of Jesus. And so we see healing in chapter 4. And then we see this um, teaching time. And this teaching time is not just um, serving uh, in the greater picture of things just to teach us the gospel, but also at, in the Matthean um, didactic time as he's going through the book of Matthew. Matthew is establishing something for us because in chapters 8 and 9, which is kind of the big theme which we're seeing in chapters 8 and 9, is the authoritative power which Jesus has. And so now we're going to see healings again in, in chapters 8 and 9. But there's a difference in the healings in 8 and 9 than in 4. Because in chapters 5 through 7, he has established his authority. And now he's showing us his healing authority that he has. This is what, um, there's really three things that chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount does for us. First, uh, there's a couple times in chapters 5 where he starts saying, but I say. So he'll say the Old Testament says something. And he says, but I say. And he's, what he's doing is showing that he, when he speaks, is equivalent to the Old Testament. The words of the Old Testament and all the authority they carry, that now Christ is saying, my words are just as equivalent to the Old Testament. So he's establishing something. And then um, in, chap- in the very end in 7, uh, he's, saying, he's talking about people who enter the kingdom. Only God can talk like this. Only Christ, the Messiah, is saying... Um, I determine who enters and who does not enter the kingdom. And so there's two things that he's established for us in the Sermon on the Mount that's making this healing time in 8 and 9 different than 4. And then we see in 5.17 where he says, um, he says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets, but I have come to fulfill them. And he's saying that all of the Old Testament, not only are my words equivalent, but all of the Old Testament, all of it, Is pointing to me. He's claiming that he's the Messiah. So now that he's done healings in four, five through seven has served in this, as we're going through the book of Matthew, to elevate Christ's authority for us and show us his authority. Now we're going into eight and nine and we're seeing him heal, but he's healing with authority. He's gaining authority through this teaching through five through seven and now showing us just how authoritative he is. And so one of the things that we're going to be looking at today is just this amazing authority of Christ. That's really the the main point of this. Look at uh, 7, and it says this in 728. It says, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority. So this is the the end of 729. This is the big... Kind of sounding off light, flashing us forward into chapter 8, saying, This is the main thing you need to see in chapter 8 authority. We're going to also see that word in 8 9, where he talks about where the centurion guard understands authority. But this is, this is the big, huge signpost, if you will, shining its light into chapters 8 and 9, saying, There's a big theme coming up, and you need to see that Christ has amazing authority. And so that's what I want to highlight here. So here's, the, here's my goal. This is my deep desire that um, as we're going into now, 
really a time in chapters 8 and 9 that we haven't been a part of of Matthew. We, we saw the beginning of, of his birth, Jesus' birth. And then we talked about John the Baptist a little bit. And we saw a little bit in chapter 4 of just the life of Christ. And then we went into 5 through 7. And we had this, this time where he just preached the greatest sermon ever. But we haven't gotten to, if you will, kind of walk the roads with Jesus and just see his life interacting with people. And we're, we're beginning that today in chapters eight as we go through the rest of the teaching time through Matthew. We're going to just get to walk the roads with Jesus and watch this man interact with people, see the conversations he has, feel the compassion and he love that he exercises towards people. And so my deep desire is not that primarily we'll look at that life and say, okay, that's my example. That's good. And, but that's not the primary thing I want. What I want is, if you've read Matthew over and over your entire life, that as you're watching the rest of this time, as we're going through Matthew, just this man interact with people, that you will maybe fall in love with Christ over and see this great love that this man has for people. And fall in love with this man. Because he is the most amazing reality. We, we're constantly reminded every day just how broken we are. The, the conversations that you know you need to have with your spouse, but you don't because you're broken. The, the regrets that you have as you're older of the way you wish you would have raised your children, but you didn't. The, we're just so broken from our sin. And maybe even broken from the fall, which shows us how sick, sick we are. Just... Sometimes we get cancer. Sometimes friends we know die. Sometimes we suffer for the rest of our life with something. And it's just a constant reminder of just how broken we are. And what we need to, as we look at this sea, we need to see beauty and perfection being lived out in front of us. And that will be a great help for us. So these are my goals. And I want you to just notice a couple of things here. Um, as Christ finished what is the greatest sermon ever. There's really two responses that happen. It says the crowds were astonished. It says that in 728. The crowds were astonished. So one of the first immediate responses of us is just to be like these crowds. When such amazing teaching comes to you in the full force of the person of God himself through Christ, we should stand amazed. When we, when we stand in front of his word and read it, we should allow ourselves to just be amazed by this man. And then after that, it tells us in 8.1, when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And this is really the second thing. As we stand amazed, that's, that's not enough. But we are to follow. God is not contented for us to just merely stand amazed and astonished at how wonderful he is. Um, far more is required from him, which is that we should follow him. So I'm hoping that as we go through these first 17 verses here of chapter eight, that we would have these this twofold response, amazement and follow. And we will just stand in awe of this authority that this man Christ exercises, the Messiah, which Matthew wants to wants us to see. So it says this, we're going to we're going to look at um Four sets of healing, four pictures of healing. I think the title is four pictures of the authoritative power of Christ. And this is through the healings. Now, the first three are specific individuals. And then the fourth one we'll see is in verse 17, where it's just many. Um, but this is what happens. And uh, the, 
the outline is really straightforward, but really you can just write them all down. You can guess the outline. It's pretty obvious. Uh, but as we kind of look at the first one, second one, third one, we're going to, we'll dive in and I, I want to point out some things to you that maybe uh, Christ would use to awaken all of our affections. It says in eight, when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. Great crowds followed him. This is pretty amazing. This is a time where Christ was really at the pinnacle um, of popularity. We, we know that it, that that wanes later and he is left all alone to hang on a cross by himself. But right now he is in a pinnacle of popularity. Everyone wants to be near him. Everyone wants to be around him. And notice the unbelievable humility of Christ. Because I would be tempted, if I'm at the pinnacle of my popularity, to only want to be around the most popular. And it says, And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you'll make me clean. And Christ, in this moment, and the, the pinnacle of his popularity, stops and helps one of the least of the society, a leper. And the leper says, Lord, if you will help me, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. So here's here's the first thing I want you to see. And this is the, the first picture of his authoritative power is when Jesus cleanses the leper. It's when Jesus cleanses the leper. The first thing is that this man comes up to him and he says, if you will, Lord, if you will. Lepers were forced to live in colonies. Lepers were um, suffering tremendously. Their flesh was rotting off of them. They were losing tactile functions in their fingers. They had a horrible aroma because their flesh was literally rotting off of their body. Um, they weren't allowed to touch anyone. It was a crime for them to touch. They craved. They lived a life of neglect. The human, the human life is not built and not wired to not receive touch. We're, we're, whether it's a hug or a pat on the shoulder, or a touch of a hand. We're built to crave this desire to have touch. And this man had gone a long time, a long time, without ever receiving touch. As a matter of fact, it was against the law because he had leprosy. And he comes to Christ and he says, Lord, if you will. I mean, just notice that the leper understands just the amazing authoritative power Christ has. He says, I know that you can do it. There's implied authority in you, Christ. I know that you can do this. And we should all take note that we should approach Christ as a humble petitioner, not demanding of grace, but desiring of grace, just like he does, saying, Lord, if you will, I know that you have the authority, but if you will, would you do it? And then Christ, here's where we see not just the authority of Christ, but this beautiful picture, beautiful picture of compassion. Because one of the things that the leper was craving was touch. And he says, and Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will. Now, notice, if you will, that in 8.8 and in 8.16, he heals with a word. He doesn't heal with touch in those times. But this specific moment, he knows what this man needs. Not only is he practicing compassion by the touch, but he's also practicing his authoritative power to heal as well. So he is touching him 
And really what the idea here is, in, in the Old Testament law, the idea was thought that if you were to ever touch a leper, then you would become unclean. And really the opposite is what happens here. Um, he touches him and Jesus doesn't become unclean. Instead, the leper is the one who becomes clean. The opposite of what is thought to happen. Now, uh, in Mark, in the account in Mark, whenever this little this little account is, is being told, Mark one, Mark one forty one says that Christ literally has pity on him or compassion on him. So he was moved with compassion. And so he touches him. Something that he has been uh, neglected from completely. He had been isolated from human touch for quite a long time. Skin decaying on his body. And the first touch he feels on his decaying skin is a touch from Jesus. And it's not just a touch of compassion, but it's also a touch of healing. And instantaneously, what others thought would be repulsive, Jesus touches, and the reverse happens. This man becomes clean, and he's healed. This is amazing authoritative power. This is amazing authoritative power. And this is what Christ has done for you and me. We're not any different than this man. Our hearts are craving to be healed by him. We're, we're craving it. And he has, if you believed in Christ, reached out and healed you. Just think about how radically changed this man's life was. Outcasts of society had to live in a colony, wasn't allowed to touch anybody, never experienced any love or affection from people. And now, instantaneously, his life is catapulted in completely different change. I mean, it's just unbelievable the radical nature physically in which this man has been changed. Now he is no longer an outcast. He doesn't have to live in, um, he doesn't have to live in a colony. He is allowed to touch people. He is allowed to experience the things that he's been wired for. This is a picture of the gospel. This is exactly us. We were in the outer realms of darkness and we have been transferred into the kingdom of his son. We don't have to be outcast in society. Um, I'm sorry, not society, but darkness anymore. We get to experience and not have to be in a colony of death, but now in a colony of life with Christ. So his story is our story. And then it says this. There was an immediate obvious change. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, now, it's a little bit puzzling. Um, this, this verse 4 is kind of something that's called the messianic secret. Jesus is wanting to keep his, um, the, the fact that he's Messiah a secret from people sometimes. And he says this, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to him. All right, let's, let's talk about the first half and then we'll talk about the second half. First half. See that you say nothing to anyone. What's the deal with Jesus trying to keep it a, qu- a quiet deal? Um, what's, what's, what Theologically, it's called the Messianic secret. What's the deal with the Messianic secret? Um, there's a couple things going on, really. Uh, first of all, Jesus is not wanting to draw a ton of crowds, even though he has a lot. He's trying not to draw a ton of crowds for healing because he's not wanting to be known as just merely a healing ministry. That's not what he's come to earth for. It's just to be a mere healing ministry. He's the Messiah. 
And he's come to die for our sins. Matthew 121 has told us that already. He came to save his people from their sins, not save his people from their physical suffering that they experience for their short lives on earth. So that's that's the first thing. The second thing um, of the messianic secret is when people know who he is, we know what happens. He gets killed and, and it's simply just not time yet. It's not time for him to go to the cross. So he's instructing them to be quiet. And so that because the time had not come for him to die. All right. So then we go to the second part and he says, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded. So what do we what's this gift that Moses requires? What is this? And and just a quick summation. Here's what's going on. The final decision as to whether healing had truly happened or not was in the hands of the priest. And so he says, go show yourself to the priest. And this is from Leviticus 14, 19. Um, and whenever the healing has officially been declared as true, you're supposed to offer an, a gift offering or a thank offering. Um, and so Christ is telling him to go offer the gift that Moses commanded. This is what Moses had commanded. And so the real point of this is this, is that Jesus is showing his submission to the written law of God, that uh, he has not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. So he still shows uh, that the law is still valid and, and, and he has not come to abolish it at all. Now, after this, it says, offer the gift that Moses commanded. And then it says, for proof to them, for proof to them. This is the last little thing I want to talk about. This first authoritative power healing is this implicit in this Greek text where it says for a proof to them um, could be added something that's that could be added to the end of this, just as an implicit meaning in the Greek, when it says, for a proof to them, could, you could tag on if you wanted, uh, so they'll believe, or um, for their belief of what's happened. So that's kind of an implicit understanding in the Greek text there. It's not just like, here it is, I'm proving it to you. See it? It's more like, here, I'm showing you what's happened to me for a proof text, for a proof, so that when you see it, you'll also believe in the one who has done this for me. So this is pretty amazing. Um, this is where Jesus, uh, in, this, in this text where it says, for their belief, where Jesus is fulfilling the law, not abolishing it, but also because he's God himself, transcending the law. And what I mean by this is this. He's fulfilling the law because he's telling this guy to go keep the Mosaic law. Go to the priest, show him what you did, offer your gift, let him say it. But he's also transcending the law because implicit in the text is that he's saying so that they'll believe. And so he's transcending the law by basically putting this guy on mission to go be a visible testimony to the priests so that they'll believe in Jesus and be saved as well. So that's transcendence of the law. That's not abolishing it by any sense at all, but he's making this guy a missionary. So this is pretty amazing um, that when we're healed, I mean, life application, when you've been healed, you are to go be a testimony to the world so that they'll believe. That's what, That's what's being shown to us here. So that's the first healing that we see. Then we go into this next one where it says he entered into Capernaum. Now, Capernaum was just a very small village, not not very big at all. And it says a centurion came forward to him. A centurion is a Roman officer, probably had at least 100 men underneath him. And so he was very much acquainted with authority, that he had authority. And when he told these men to do something, they had to go do it. And he understood this, completely understood it. 
And then he says this. Uh, and a centurion came forward and he said, Lord, my servant is, is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Now, quick little side note. Um, this little section right here is not so much about the paralyzed servant as it is about the centurion. So we're going to this little second experience of healing is, is not so much about the servant as it is about the centurion, because we're going to see something pretty amazing from the centurion. So. All right, here's let's just go ahead and put up number two. This, the second thing is the f- second picture of the authoritative power of Christ is uh, Jesus heals the centurion servant. Jesus heals the centurion servant. But he says this, Lord, my servant is uh, lying home paralyzed suffering terribly or in, in agony and, and torment. He's, he's extremely, uh, extremely sick. And he says to him, I will come and heal him. Now, that, that verse has just been messing with my mind for a little bit because we know what, a- what happens after is that the centurion says, Lord, I'm not worthy. Just say the word and he'll be healed. And so, but verse seven has just been messing with my mind a little bit because um, Jesus is God and he knows that the guy is going to say, no, you don't have to come. You don't have to come. All you got to do is say the word. But still, verse 7, he still says, I'm going to come and heal him. He could have just said, oh, we know what's going to happen. So I'll just say the word. But he still, because he's in uh, interacting with us and, and living life with us, he's still accommodating himself to us and letting things happen to where he says, I'll come. And then the guy says, that's just been messing with my mind. Anyway, all right. I don't know if y'all, maybe I'm crazy. All right, verse 8. Uh, then the centurion replied, now, this is pretty amazing, especially for a Gentile. This is amazing for a Gentile. There's a couple, a couple understandings that this Gentile centurion has about the authoritative power of the Messiah that is amazing. And that we're going to see later on in this little section that even the Jews don't understand. And Jesus and Matthew himself are going to hold out this example of the centurion and say, Israel, believe like this. Come on. Um, And this is what he says. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. This is not just um, this is not just talk. This is real understanding of who Christ was. He says, I'm not worthy for you to have you to come under my life. This Gentile understanding, uh, because he's in a position of authority, is exercising an amazing understanding of the authority of Christ, saying, you're God. I'm not worthy for God to come into my house. And then he says this. But only say the word and my servant will be healed. Only say the word. This is astounding. The Gentile completely understands the authority that Jesus has as God. Only say the word. That's all Christ has to do. I mean, with his word, he created the entire universe. By the word of his power. And so. The word. Is very very effective. And this. Gentile centurion understands it. And then he says. For I too am a man under authority. With soldiers under me. And I say to them. Go and he goes. And another come and he comes. And he comes. And to my servant do this. And he does that. And so here's here's an amazing little deal here. This is verse 10. Look what it says. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. As you read your Bibles, you are going to see time after time after time where many, 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 many people marvel at Jesus and the things that he does. 
But this will be the only time that you will see Jesus marveling at someone. And why is he marveling? Because he is seeing great faith. He is seeing great faith. All right, so if we wanted to lift this out and say, what's the principle, Fudd, I need to, I need to get from here. Faith is what Christ is desiring to see in our lives because faith is what saves. God is what saves, but we, we're saying faith is instrumentally important in our lives. And so he says, um, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and he said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. With no one in Israel have I found such faith. Now, Jesus's authority is extremely great. I mean, this, this Gentile completely understands it. Um, and he understands that this man is God and that he has an amazing authority that all he have to say is just say the word. You don't have to come. You're God. I understand that because I'm a, I'm a Roman soldier. I understand how this works. Say the word and it's going to happen. And when Jesus sees this, he's absolutely amazed at his faith that it says that he marveled. And then he tells any, everybody, I haven't seen anybody in Israel that has faith like this. And then he goes into this. I mean, usually with number one and even number three, we don't have any kind of little teaching time. Um, but in the second one, we have this little statement in 11 and 12 that Jesus goes into. And I think that. Uh, we should look at it because it's an amazing thing that Jesus says. He, he doesn't say, we've never found such faith. Wow. Heals. It says, and then it says, okay, here's the word. I'll do it. And then that's it. But he goes into this little time of teaching and he says this. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So this, this using the language of east and west and recline at table, this is another way of saying a whole lot of Gentiles one day are going to come and recline at table. And this, this recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob um, is pointing forward to the messianic banquet that is going to happen one day where all Christians, um, spoken of in Revelation 19, where all Christians will uh, be at the messianic banquet of, of Christ. And he's pointing forward and he's saying, many will come from east and west to recline at table with Abraham. Another way of saying a lot of Gentiles one day are going to come and be at this. And then he says, because remember, this is towards Jews, Matthew writing towards Jews and Jesus talking in front of Jews. And he's telling them all, Israel, I've never seen faith like this. One day when everything's done, Gentiles are going to be in heaven with me. And then he says this. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. And Jews, some of you, not all of you, but some of you won't be at the messianic banquet. Now, Jews are hearing this and he's saying at the very end one day, there's going to be a lot of Gentiles and some Jews won't even be there. This is messing with them. I mean, this is not not intentionally trying to provoke them, but trying to bring them into faith in the Messiah and then he uses a, a, just a horrible description of hell. We'll be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is extreme suffering. That's what the weeping's for. And despair. That's what the gnashing of the teeth is. So there's extreme suffering and extreme despair. And what he's saying, in essence, to everyone that is there, he's saying, the point that I want to make here is we've seen faith of a Gentile that is unprecedented. And he's making the point that there is no automatic advantage 
of being a Jew. There's no automatic advantage that you're going to be in heaven. Instead, faith is what is necessary, just like the centurion for entrance into the kingdom. There are two polarities here that are um, in huge, stark contrast. There's a messianic banquet, which will be in heaven and will be supremely great. It'll be unbelievable. And then there's outer darkness. I mean, the stark contrast between the banquet and the darkness is is remarkable. And he's saying faith is what decides this. And so Matthew, as he's writing this, is holding this out as a plea for Israel. Believe in Jesus just like this Gentile so that you will be in the banquet and you won't be in the outer darkness where there's suffering and despair, weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so he is extending this through Matthew to us as we're Gentiles reading this. And he's saying, if you're not in Christ, if you don't know Christ, don't resign yourself to outer darkness. The the contrast is more vast than you could ever imagine. The despair and the suffering is more wicked and terrible than you could ever conceive of. Don't go there and said, exercise faith in Christ of his work on the cross for you in your behalf. And you will be at the messianic banquet with Christ. And then he says in verse 13, and the centurion said, I'm sorry. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. That's the same word as faith. And that the servant was healed at that very moment. It's not so much about the paralyzed servant as it is about the centurion. We know that from the teaching time in 11 and 12. So that's that's the second big highlight of authoritative power that Jesus has is that with just a word, he can heal someone that's not even present. And the faith of the centurion shows the absolute unbelievable authoritative power that Christ has when he says, you can just do it right now. And he wants us to have this kind of faith. And then verse 14, um, we, we see that Peter um, lives in Capernaum uh, and blessed Peter. He gets to live with his mother-in-law. And it says this. I'm just a joke. It's just a joke. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw that was just terrible. He saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. And uh, G, so Jesus goes in now, here. We don't even see a question and answer. We see that pattern in the first in the second healing. Will you do this? Yes, I will. There is even, not even a question. Maybe there was one, but in the, in the text itself that we have in the narrative, there wasn't. Jesus entered Peter's house and he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. And he touched her again with the touch here and um, touched her hand. And the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. So just, just understanding, just a quick little understanding of the first century. Um, fevers were, were not considered, for us, fevers are symptomatic of something else. Um, but for them, fevers were the sickness. And so this is a big deal. It's not just like a, a little fever for them in their mind. She's sick. She has a fever. And so this is a bigger deal than what we think it, for us. We know fevers are symptomatic of something, but she's extremely sick in their mind um, and, and probably was of something. And it might not have been the fever or something else, but they say it's the fever. Um, and Jesus touches her. And when he touches her, um, notice what happens. She rose and began to serve him. So here's the third one. And I know you know what it is. It's Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. This is the, the third place where we see the authoritative power of Christ. But I want you to notice uh, something that's pretty amazing here. And that's what she does. That's what she does um, whenever she's healed. It says that 
he touched her hand and the fever left her. So this is not a, a progressive healing, not some kind of thing that's going to take a while. Instead, it's, it's instantaneous, just like the leper, immediate healing. And then she gets up and she begins to serve him. She begins to serve him. Um, this is the correct posture of us all. This is the correct way that we're all supposed to. As we have been healed by Jesus, he has taken our affirmities just as he has taken hers. And we know that this is the case because Matthew's pointing us to Isaiah 53 at the very end in verse 17. Um, and we're going to talk about that in a second. And just as he's taken our affirmities, which is our sin, we must rise like Peter's mother-in-law and serve because we have been healed by Christ. So that's really the third thing I want us to see is Jesus has authoritative power to um, take on, if you will, our affirmities. To He has whatever ailment you are suffering from, any kind of physical thing that's going on. Jesus has the authoritative power to heal it. Um, but even above that, whenever we've been healed from our sin, Christ is saying that after you've been healed... But from your sin, that you are to go just like she is and go and live a life of service towards Christ. And then we see this. All right. Here's the last one. Here's the fourth one. And that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. So that's the fourth one. Um, the fourth one is Jesus heals many oppressed by demons and sick. So I've read 424 where we see... It says tons of people were coming to be healed by Christ. And we see because sometimes when we read, at least I do, um, sometimes when I'm reading the text, I kind of forget um, just how many people Christ must have healed. Because we see these stories like we read, oh, Jesus healed the leper and then Jesus healed this person and Jesus healed the woman with the issue of blood. And Jesus healed um, Jairus's like we, we Jairus's daughter. So we see these things and we're like, he healed that person, that person. We could count on our fingers the number of people Jesus healed. You know, if you read the Gospels, there's like, well, you know, 15 or so. But um, as we see in 424, many people, we, we can't even count them all. And it says here um, that that evening they brought many who were oppressed by demons and cast out spirits with a word and all who were sick. The very last verse in the book of John says that Jesus did so many great things that all the books of the world couldn't contain all the things that he's done. So what I want us to see here is that this, this fourth one, um, the sheer mass amounts of people that have just been healed by Christ. There have been, um, so many people that were healed by him. So many people that were healed by him. Now, then Matthew quotes, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And then he, re he quotes Isaiah 53, 4. He took on our illnesses and bore our diseases. So this is the question you should be asking me right now. But why did you have to point out to me that he probably healed thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people in three, in three years? Okay, I got that. But then why are you why not just me, but why is Matthew saying and this was to fulfill what was written by the prophet Isaiah. He took on our illnesses and bore our diseases. All right. Where did he do that? Where did he take on our illnesses and bear our diseases on the cross? So what Matthew and uh, I think the Holy Spirit is wanting us to see is this. Um, these healings serve for us as a precursor to the cross. This is what I mean. It's not just 
the cross where Jesus um, began the work of the atonement. Instead, the work of the atonement actually began his entire life. What I mean is this. As he would go for three years, thousands upon thousands of people, and lay his hands on them, he's in essence saying, the illness that I'm curing right now with my hands, I'm taking on myself right now, and I will go to the cross one day and bear your disease. The atonement for Christ began at his public ministry. Meaning, every time he lays his hands on someone, this was another reminder that he was born to die. He was going to the cross and he healed thousands upon thousands. The reminder of this would be overwhelming for us. He goes and he touches another person. That is something I'm going to the cross for. Another person. That is something I'm going to the cross for. The reminder every moment as he's healing thousands upon thousands. This reminder would surely overwhelm us. And this is the amazing love of Christ and the authoritative power which he has as he's going and healing people saying, this illness I'm taking on, I'm going to take care of at the cross. This illness I'm taking on, I'm going to take care of the cross. This is amazing authority. This is amazing power. And oh, they came to him. They just kept coming and coming. And he kept healing. He kept absorbing for them their illness and absorbing for them for their illness. And one day, ultimately, he does this for you with all of your illnesses and especially your sin. He's taking it on. What an amazing Savior we have. We're reminded every day just how broken we are. But our brokenness, not just physically, because our bodies are constant reminders of that, but spiritually, has been overcome for us by Jesus. We didn't do it, but he did it for us throughout his entire life. And so I want to read to you what Matthew is quoting And maybe with new fresh eyes and hearts, you'll hear this prophecy that Matthew quotes. It's going to read a portion of it. It says this in Isaiah. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth by oppression and judgment. He was taken away. 
the authoritative power of Christ has been ultimately displayed for us in the cross. And he has authority over sin. And he has authority over your life. And he's healing you like this leper. And sending you to be a testimony to this world. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this beautiful picture of authority you have and recognize that perhaps our lives don't fall under this. Perhaps we forget sometimes just how broken we are and that if we've given our lives to you, that you have complete authority over us. So as we go into our time of worship, May we think on and consider that our lives are yours and that you should exercise complete authority over them and that we should we should fall to our knees and worship you with our lives and give you the authority that you have. You've already ascertained it in the cross. You've already grasped it. It's already yours because of your work on the cross. So be with us now as we worship. May we think, may we respond, may we pray, may we repent, may we stand and worship you. However, Holy Spirit, you lead us. May we exercise that freedom now and respond likewise. In Jesus' name, amen.